and welcome to the Necromancers of the Northwest podcast. Today we're taking a bit of a departure from our normal routine to bring you a greater look at a number of third-party products for your D&D or Pathfinder campaign. We'll be continuing our ongoing short story later, but for now, let's just jump into the reviews as Josh and I have a lot to cover with you today. If you're like me, you're not entirely satisfied with the role of material components in spellcasting when it comes to 3.5 and Pathfinder. It's probably not at the top of your list of issues, but chances are, at some point in the past, you've had a player, or been a player, running a hedge witch or village wizard, and expressed an interest in digging around through the woods to find rare herbs or other spell ingredients, or else take a trip to the magic shop to discover firsthand whether or not salamander eyeballs could really make an acceptable substitute for newt eyeballs. As it stands, material components tend to fall into two categories. The non-costly ones are completely forgotten, as either players as players either take shoe materials or they spend two gold on spell component pouch, which remains conveniently stocked for the rest of the game. After all, keeping track of exactly how many portions of Bat Guano the wizard is carting around isn't very fun, and it feels arbitrary and mean to suddenly declare that he can't cast any spells because he forgot to stock up last time he was in town. And since you're not really tracking things anyway, it feels like there's rarely much point in role-playing stocking up, because let's be honest, neither GM nor player is really paying attention to what components are used for which spells, so no one knows what to be buying anyway. Costly material components, on the other hand, are observed, because everyone recognizes that they have a cost for game balance reasons. Of course, all, of, all too often this means that when you need a 5,000 GP diamond for a raised dead spell in the middle of nowhere, odds are you didn't plan ahead and buy one. And no one wants to see Timmy's character die, so wouldn't it be fine to just spend 5,000 gold as part of the spell and call it even? These sorts of costly material components rarely, if ever, actually get used as quest hooks and tend to serve only one purpose, ensuring that casting the spell has a real cost. In both cases, then, the flavor of rare and exotic ingredients as spellcasting tools is largely lost. The book that I'm reviewing today was intended to fix all that. It's called, somewhat matter-of-factly, 101 Arcane Spell Components. It was published by Ronan Arts and written by Philip Reed. In the introduction, the author has this to say about the purpose of the book. This book, 101 Arcane Spell Components, was written with the idea of making some of, the, some of those spells wondrous again, if only for a short time. The supplementary spell components described in this book help make several of the spells already available to D20 players a little more unpredictable and, maybe, a little more magical. It's certainly a noble goal, and I know that I personally have been rather enamored of the idea of supplemental or optional spell components ever since I first saw them printed in the 3.0 Book of Vile Darkness. And, in fact, we've experimented with them a bit in one of the appendices to Advanced Arcana 2. Alright, alright, I promise I won't talk any more about our products while reviewing this. I just want to point out that it's definitely an idea that I, at least, think is cool. So, how does Ronin Arts go about making supplemental arcane components? Why don't we take a look at a sample of one? Flesh of a Drider. Description, a large chunk of skin from a drider may be either from the humanoid or spider portion of the body, but the exact effects vary. Once slain, the flesh of a drider is only useful as a supplementary spell component for six hours. Effect, if using the spider portion, any spell that has a duration has that duration doubled if the spellcaster succeeds a spellcraft check, DC 20 plus spell level. If the flesh is from the humanoid part of the drider's body, the duration is extended by half on a successful spellcraft check, DC 15 plus spell level. The extended duration effect of this component may be combined with any modifier to the spell's duration. Components or modifiers that affect other aspects of the spell may also be used. Casting time modifier, plus four rounds. Component time, or component type, material. Knowledge, arcane DC. This, for the record, is the DC to recognize that this item can be used in this way. 15. Weight, 20 pounds. Value, 85 GP. Spider, 50 GP. Humanoid. A quick note about the casting time modifier that I mentioned there. According to the rules in this book, all spells cast using supplemental material components take at least a full round to cast, meaning that spells that take only a standard action automatically take a full round action. In addition to that, some supplemental spells impose an additional penalty to the casting time expressed in a number of rounds. In this case, it was four, meaning that using this spell to cast Acid Arrow would take no less than five rounds of casting. Speaking of using it to cast Acid Arrow, there's something about this material component that you might not be aware of. It can only be used to cast spells with the Acid Descriptor. You see, the book is divided up into various sections based on spell descriptors, like Acid, Sonic, Mind Affecting, Darkness, Evil, and so forth, and spell components appearing in a given section can only be used on spells that have that descriptor. While I can sort of see the justification for Drider Flesh and Acid if I squint and tilt my head to the side, I have a lot more trouble understanding, for example, why an Athach Tusk or Quaddle Teeth 
would apply specifically to acid spells, or why a gibbering mouther's mouth, or the heart of any magical beast, would specifically work only for electricity spells. Now, now seems like a good time to step back for a moment and make it clear that this is going to be a little bit different from one of our normal reviews. You see, normally at this point, I'd just continue to point out the various flaws of the book, which are many, maybe make a few jokes, and then give you my recommendation on whether or not it's worth your time and money. But today's review is going to be a little bit different from all that. Maybe I feel bad because so many of our reviews tend to be negative. Maybe I'm just trying to bring a little more design philosophy into the podcast because so much of today is about reviews. Or maybe I just really think that the idea behind the book is cool and want to see it succeed. Whatever the case, instead of just telling you what was wrong about the book and advising you not to buy it, I'm instead going to tell you about all the things that you would need to do to fix the book as a GM in order to make it usable as a product at your table. Because, believe me, the vision here is sound, and those who are willing to fix the execution will find it to be a worthwhile product. The first problem that needs to be overcome, as we've already established, is the idea of restricting components to only be usable with a single descriptor of spells. Why is this a problem? After all, doesn't it just serve to make magic more arcane and incomprehensible, and therefore add to the wonder the author was trying to invoke? Maybe. But what it primarily does is make these spell components worthless. Let's take the Acid Descriptor, for example. There are 14 different spell components in this book that can only be used on spells with the Acid Descriptor. By contrast, there are only three spells with the Acid Descriptor in the entire Pathfinder role-playing game core rulebook. Of course, if you throw in Advanced Player's Guide and Ultimate Magic, this number expands to 18, and if you use other books, you might be able to get that number up a little further. And yes, 101 Arcane Spell Components was originally written for the 3.0 OGL, rather than for Pathfinder, but the point remains that there just aren't that many spells that you can use those 14 spell components with, and with the exception of perhaps the mind-affecting descriptor, most of the other categories work the same way. More to the point, there's not that many that you would want to use with spells that have the acid descriptor. Take the Drider Flesh from the above example. By spending five times as long to cast the spell, you can double its duration. While this might be worthwhile on a spell like, say, Hollow or Unhollow, where you could spend five days to create the effect for two years uh, instead of one day for one year, it's a lot less impressive on Acid Fog or Acid Arrow, where you would need to, cast, to be casting them during combat, and waiting around for five turns is quite simply not going to be worth it. Of course, if we're just looking at the spell components currently only available for the Acid Descriptor, most of those just cause the spell to do more damage. Actually, another major flaw of the book is that even though there are over 100 spell components, there were probably only something like 20 different spell component effects. Nearly all of them wind up adding damage to the spell, in rare cases a flat number, uh, most of the time, however, it's one or two per caster level, or else they double the range or the duration or the catch-all all variables. Uh, some of them increase the effective caster level, or, and this is one I actually thought was rather clever, increase the caster level for one specific aspect of the spell, such as the spell's range or duration. For example, the Digester's Skull, another acid component, allows the spell's range to be calculated as though the caster's level were 1 die 4 higher than it actually is. So a spell with a range of close, 25 feet plus 5 feet per two levels, cast by a 4th level wizard, would have a range of as much as 45 feet, whereas without the skull it would always be 35. I know it doesn't sound like much, and it's not, but that's the point. It's hard to come up with ways to alter spells that are interesting while not enabling the game to simply fly apart at the hinges, uh, and the idea of increasing the caster level for only part of the spell opens up a world of possibilities. It's probably my favorite piece of design about this book. Speaking of which, I seem to have gotten a bit off track. The point I was making was that most of the spell components do very similar things, with the primary differences being things like how many rounds of spellcasting they penalize you by, and the DC, if any, required to actually use them. There are a few exceptions, however, with creative and interesting effects, and some of them even tie into the scripture they're tied to. By way of example, the effect of a chaos gem uh, is rolled randomly. An ectoplasmic residue, used for fear spells, increases any morale penalties the target would normally take by twice the caster's caster level. Yes, you heard that correct. It would increase the morale penalty of a spell by minus 20 if the caster was 10th level. Let that sink in for a moment. Another example is the Mephit Corpse, uh, which, when used in conjunction with a fire spell, causes a meteor swarm effect, caster level 20th, in 1 die 6 rounds. This brings me to another major problem that any GM attempting to use this book will need to overcome. It has serious balance issues. This goes beyond the fact that any character who can kill a method and spend two rounds casting mage armor and get a free 20th level meteor swarm, 
Not only does the book not balance nicely with the game as a whole, it also doesn't balance nicely internally. For example, let's compare the young child's heart with the good man's heart. Both of these are obviously intended for spells of the evil descriptor. The heart of a good man takes an extra four rounds to use, while the heart of a young child takes only three extra rounds. The heart of a good man doubles all the variable effects of the spell. The heart of the young child, by comparison, triples all the variable effects of the spell. Other than that, the two are functionally identical, meaning there's no reason to ever use the good man's heart if a child's heart is on hand. And since children are generally easier to slaughter than good men, I think I've made my point. This is a theme that you'll see throughout the book. Along the same lines, if you want, if you're, an e if you're evil aligned, you can sacrifice a whole character level in order to have a chance of tripling all the variables of the spell. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, it's, it's, it's just that funny. Uh, that's the entire benefit. And there is a possibility that you just lose the level with no benefit. Uh, oh, and you have to spend an extra five rounds on the spellcasting, too. That's, that's actually one of the biggest obstacles to these supplemental components ever being used in your campaign, the increased spellcasting time. In fairness, only 73 of the spells, spell components in the book, of which, according to the introduction, there are actually 117, require one or more additional rounds. But that's still notably more than half. And, well, it, it's just bad. Uh, anything that makes you take an extra round or two or five in order to cast your spell just isn't realistic for any spell designed to be used in combat, i.e. most of the ones in this book when they're limited to descriptors. It might be reasonable if the spell became incredibly powerful, like that Mephit Meteor, uh, but very few, if any, of the materials here strike that balance, so nearly all of them are just a huge waste of several turns of spellcasting. The author didn't say so in his introduction, but part of the goal of this book needs to be providing a mechanical benefit for using the optional spell components. If there's no benefit, you might as well just ignore the book and say my wizard hunts newts to put their eyes in his spells, because there's no benefit there either. What this does is actually punish the player for trying to use these spell components by making him incredibly less effective. As a result, I'd rather just say I was using exotic components and not have to spend five rounds just to cast Magic Missile. Now, it's not unreasonable to say that using that component increases the spell's casting time to a full round action. That's functionally the same as applying metamagic on the fly, which is basically what this is. It's also an acceptable drawback most of the time. But otherwise, you'll basically need to remove the casting time modifiers. The other hoop spellcasters have to jump through in order to use these spell components is a spellcraft check. The DC varies dramatically from 10 plus spell level all the way up to 30 plus spell level. In the former case, the DC is low enough to be more or less laughable. At first level, the DC will be 11, and the spellcaster's modifier will likely be at least plus 4, more like plus 7 or plus 8 for wizards, giving somewhere between a 65 and 85% chance of success. From there, the caster's bonus will increase by at least 2 for every one the DC increases, increasing the chance of success by 5% each level. In the latter case, of course, where the DC is 30 plus spell level, 1 more or less ensures that only high-level characters will be able to use the item, meaning that its progression is largely meaningless. It might as well be a flat DC. There's nothing strictly wrong with this, except that the 10-plus spell-level DC is pointless, uh, but they're applied incredibly haphazardly without any sign of rhyme or reason. Not all of them require it either, by any stretch of the imagination. As a result, you'll need to figure out which ones should have a lower DC, which ones should have a higher DC, and which ones shouldn't have one at all, or more or less by yourself because paying attention to the DCs they assigned is going to lead to madness. In general, effects that you don't want available at lower levels should have higher bases, i.e. 15 plus level or 25 plus level, whereas the ones you want to be available at the beginning of the game should have lower DCs, if any. The only real reason to have the DC at all at that point is to introduce the element of risk, so it would be probably behoove you to change the system to 10 plus twice the spell's level, for example, to keep a relatively smooth progression as the character increases in level, making it safer for him to apply to spells he finds easy but hard to apply to whatever his best spells are at the time. The other thing to bear in mind about these caster level checks is that a very small number of the components that use them also list a negative side effect. This negative side effect isn't something that happens every time the item is used. Rather, if the spellcraft check is a natural one, the spell fails completely and this negative side effect occurs. Uh, usually it's not very impressive, something like the caster taking a few points of damage or being sickened for, your, for a few rounds, though in some cases it's more dire, like being paralyzed for a few rounds or taking constitution damage. You probably could leave these if you wanted, but I wouldn't bother. 
In fact, I would probably also take out the 5% chance that the spell simply fails. This part applies to all components that have a spellcraft check, because it's another big disincentive from ever using these items, and I think that extending the casting time and making the PCs go get them should be enough disincentive in any case. Except, I guess, when you're handing out free meteor swarms, but you probably shouldn't be doing that anyway. The last major problem that I see with these at the table is the requirement on so many of the components that they be fresh. A specific amount of time is given, usually in hours, before various components become worthless. If you'll recall, the Drider Flesh example above only allowed for six hours. Now, admittedly, many of the descriptions say that you can magically preserve the components, but the only spell to do so is Gentle Repose, at least as far as I know. If the writers know of another, they didn't bother to specify it. Uh, those of you who've been on our website this week may be aware that I wound up making a spell specifically for that purpose uh, in this week's Obscure Arcana, and you might want to look at that. But that's free, so that doesn't count against my not talking about our products. In any case, uh, somehow I think that most players aren't going to be thrilled about having to waste a third-level spell slot on keeping their hunk of drider meat around long enough to use it. What's more, a number of the items specifically state that magical preservation, for whatever reason, won't do the trick, and either doesn't work at all or imposes a percentage chance that the item simply won't work. Actually, a lot of the items already just have a flat-out percentage chance that they won't work, but that's a separate issue entirely. Now, there are obvious flavor reasons why one might assume that a night hag's head or a harpy's tongue or what have you would dry out in decay and become unusable. Unfortunately, this is wildly impractical. Take, for example, the cloaker's lungs. These are good for only an hour, and magical preservation is specifically stated as being unable to work. That means that if the wizard actually wants to use these, he basically needs to drag a comatose cloaker around with him everywhere so that he can kill it at a moment's notice and harvest its lungs. In addition to the time it takes to retrieve them, he can then spend two whole rounds casting any given spell, and as long as he doesn't roll a one, which would negate the spell entirely, he can have the range of the spell be affected as though it were, he were a whopping two die four levels higher than he actually is. If that doesn't clearly display the unfortunate disparity between the amount of work and sacrifice involved for these material components and the actual benefit gained, I'm not sure what will. So, let's recap. In order to make this book usable, you'll need to basically throw out the casting time modifier section of each item, drastically rework the effects section of each item, completely redo the spellcraft DCs involved, and toss out any information in the description of how long the item lasts for, which makes up about half of most of the description sections. Oh, and you need to completely remove the overarching categories of spell components by descriptor. On top of that, for ease of use, you'll probably want to alphabetize them or find some other means of organizing them, because the author didn't. Other than all the acid descriptor components being together, for example, they're not in any kind of order I can see. That basically means rewriting the book from scratch. Which begs the question, is there any reason to purchase this book at all? I would say that yes, there is. Admittedly, it's not the strongest of reasons in the world, but the fact remains that even if you don't use any of the mechanics in the book, it does still have over 100 ideas for supplementary material components. Admittedly, a lot of these boil down to a formula of body part X of monster Y, and you could probably come up with the same by skimming the bestiary. But there are a few that are really clever, uh, like a used hangman's noose or some exotic plants, etc. It may seem like coming up with exotic ingredient ideas would be easy, and the first few probably are, but it doesn't take long before it gets harder to come up with good ones, let me tell you. That said, the price of the book is $5. Considering how much of the book you will need to completely redo from scratch, I just can't recommend buying it in good conscience. If you want to make cool and exciting supplemental spell components, you have better options than this. On the other hand, after preparing this review, I took a little time to try and track down one such option and had a lot of trouble with it. Uh, besides Advanced Arcana 2, which I already mentioned contains a few of these, the only book I could find on DriveThruRPG uh, that seemed to have anything to do with this was a book by Mongoose Publishing called Encyclopedia Arcane uh, Components and Foci. Currently marked down to $8.97, it's not really that much more expensive than 101 Arcane Spell Components, and a quick, quick flip through tells me it will be a lot more valuable to you. It does use a completely different system, of course. Rather than plopping down ready-made components that can be added to anything, it lays out a system of substituting components by way of two new skills, and more or less leaves the details up to your imagination. One example is that you might use Minotaur Fur instead of Bull Fur in a Bull Strength spell, and if your check succeeded, it would be more powerful and might also have a side effect. In this system, though, anything that can be justified as making sense for a particular spell will do, creating a much more open-ended system. 
I don't have time to do a full review here, but if someone were going to force you to either buy Encyclopedia, Arcane, Components, and Foci, or 101 Arcane Spell Components, I'd spring for the Encyclopedia. And, of course, my personal choice would always be Advanced Arcana 2, but then maybe I'm just a bit biased. Alright, well, wasn't that enlightening? Now, I have more reviews for you today, so don't go anywhere. Uh, after I reviewed 110 spell variants last week, I found myself wondering if maybe I hadn't misjudged Super Genius Games. And so when I heard we were going to be doing a lot of product reviews today, I let at the opportunity to look at something else from the guys over at Super Genius Games. The Loot for Less series. Now, I don't quite have time to review the entire series. In fact, as it happens, we're only going to be looking at a couple of the books from that series, namely Belt One On and Fantastic Footwear, both by Owen K.C. Stevens. Before we start, though, I feel like I should give you the uh, rundown on Loot for Less in general. So basically, the goal of the series, as professed in the nearly identical introductions before all the books, is to provide a bunch of magical gear for only 2,500 GP or even less. Uh, frequently, they feel the need in these books to justify their pricing. Uh, this is something that some of the other reviewers like a bit, but for me it just makes me feel that they are kind of nervous and reading the uh, reading all these sections they make some pretty sketchy assumptions at least in my opinion and in order to make sure that their prices fit the uh, the underlying budget that they wanted to achieve uh, but as someone who understands the value of cheap magical items and the uh, positive effects that they can have on a game I didn't really need the explanation for why one would want a collection of cheapo magic knickknacks that, uh, that they seem to think you will need and therefore felt the need to include in, uh, in the introduction in every book. Uh, the series will probably appeal uh, more to DMs looking to stat out low to mid-level NPCs with magic gear which they can then hand over to players uh, th than it will to players who are looking to outfit their adventurers when building them from scratch, say at the start of a campaign. So you might want to keep that in mind if you're thinking of purchasing the product, is it's, it's almost certainly definitely going to appeal more to DMs. That's not to say that players couldn't theoretically find it useful. Uh, so after the introduction, all the books launch just right into their magic item collection, and that, that is most of what you get with these PDFs. They don't really mess around a lot with, with, with freely explanations and things, so you really get to the meat of what they're trying to sell you, and that, that's the majority of the products that you get. So... Uh, even though we're only going to be looking at a total of 15 pages between the two books we're going to be looking at today, as I said, Belt One On and uh, Fantastic Footwear, that's volumes 8 and 4 of the series respectively, uh, we st I just don't have time to go over every item they put in there with a fine-tooth comb, and that's not going to be all that fun for you if you're thinking of buying the product. Anyway, so what I've decided to do is I'm going to look at the item that I feel is most interesting and relevant that's on every page in the book. So we will be looking at about 13 items, since a lot of those 15 pages are, are actually the cover and the, uh, the OGL agreement and that sort of thing. So, uh, moving on, we're going to go ahead and talk about the book about belts. Loot for less, belt one on. Uh, so naturally they start with that introduction I was talking about earlier, where they tell us handily that this book is going to be about cheap magical belts, and then they reiterate why we want, might want those. Uh, for those of you who, uh, who don't know, that's going to be mostly because lower level players have trouble building wealth because most of the loot they get, stuff like potions and scrolls, things that go away. And this sort of gives them more of a sense of, uh, of having things. And it's also nice for NPCs who get NPC gear, which isn't very much, and you need to give them some magic stuff, either to make them more impressive or to, uh, to hand over some magical gear to your players without uh, changing the game balance in either direction very uh, very extremely. Uh, so from then on, they uh, they move into five pages of straight magic belts. So let's get a uh, let's take a look at some of these belts, shall we? All right. So from page two, which is where they start their item blocks, I'll decided to talk about the belt of coins because it nicely sums up what's in the rest of the book and gives us a good idea of what kind of item to expect going forward. That is to say that the item doesn't really make any sense from a flavorful perspective and mechanically is virtually useless to everyone ever. So, by now you might be wondering what it does. Well, it allows you to produce a single SP a day, which isn't particularly useful unless you need to start a chicken farm and definitely isn't all that cool. Admittedly, the idea of the item isn't really all that bad. Sometimes 
you need to tip NPCs, and you need to pay for food, lodging, and other expenses, which aren't really material to adventurers. And something like this might be of use to higher-level players who, uh, who don't have the time or inclination to want to change their platinum into SP every time they come into town and want a nice meal. If I were making the item, however, I might have made it produce up to 10 SP a day, as that would let you afford in-rooms, you could tip the messenger and the bar maiden, and you could, do, you could do just a lot more with 10 SP a day, and it's really not giving them that much more money. Um, but my real beef with this item, though, is that it's a belt. Uh, personally, I think it would have made a better coin purse or a treasure chest, because both those make, make a lot more flavorful sense to me. Uh, I mean, if it's a coin purse and it makes money, then that's, uh, I mean, that, that's something you might expect. But a belt... I, I don't know. It just it just does not connect for me. I know there's such a thing as a money belt, but it's very different. Uh, so, uh, another benefit of having it be a coin purse or a chest or a bag or a pouch or something like that is that those higher level characters I mentioned who might actually want something like this won't have to take off their belts of bodily protection every time they want to enjoy some creature comforts. Alright, well, let's move on then. Uh, I had some trouble deciding which belt to talk about from page 3, as there were two which I thought might be worth talking about, the Crawling Cumberland and the Fighter's Gird. Ultimately, I went with the Cumberland because I thought it was more representative of the product as a whole. So what's it do? Well, this handy belt, as a standard action, can become either a giant centipede or a viper, which serves you to the best of its ability. Neat imagery, I th though I think it would have been cooler on like a specific weapon, like a whip, or, uh, or even on a rod, like, um, you know, Python and Viper, the, ro the rods that turn into snakes that they have. Um, but on a belt, it's not that bad. I mean, it's snake-like in appearance. So it, it makes more flavorful sense than the last one from that perspective. Fortunately, though, it, the effect is somewhat spoiled by them not telling us what size the centipede or Viper we get is. Now... I mean, I, I understand that given the item's cost and the associated spell, Summon Monster 1, we, we, we should be able to more or less figure out that, that we're looking at the smallest guys here, but I I just don't want to have to think about it or look into it, and I think that the book would have felt a lot more finished and uh, if, they, if they had told me. And there's a lot of places in the book where things just aren't quite done, and there's also a few places where they tell you things you don't need to know, like when they reiterate in the item stat block how much something weighs when, uh, or in the item's description, sorry, how much something weighs when they tell us in the uh, in the block above it. So uh, there, there's a lot of that kind of thing in there. Next, I want to talk about the Girdle of Greenland Whispers. This belt is actually kind of cool, a serious departure from the majority of the belts in the book, uh, but what it does is it causes you to hear the whispering from all the plant life around you. You can't communicate with the plants, though the ability the belt offers, the only thing you they seem to want to talk about anyway, are what they've recently seen and heard. Leading me to the conclusion that the plants aren't actually whispering to you, but rather that the belt's magic communicates the information to you independent of the surrounding life forms and what their will or consciousness that they might pseudo have might be, uh, might be thinking. So ultimately, what the, this information does or this whispering is it, uh, it allows the belt's wearer to better conceal himself and to better find things in the, uh, in the forested areas in, whether that's a forest, jungle, or swamp. They call it those three terrain types. And th this does make sense because they're, they're telling him everything that's, uh, that's happening around him, and uh, that, that lets him perform those tasks better. Uh, so it's kind of an okay, kind of an interesting mechanical fact. Um, I do have a couple of complaints about the item, though. For example, why is it a belt? A helmet seems to make more sense to me. Uh, I mean, a belt that causes you to hear whispers? What's up with that? They don't really say, obviously. Uh, my second complaint is uh, is more flavorful in nature. In essence, uh, in my opinion, uh, I think it would be much cooler if constantly hearing whispers eventually drove you mad. Or, or at least distracted you. And the item's description seems to indicate the, that the whispers only help and do not hinder. For example, they don't keep you from hearing other sounds or distract you in any way, and there's no mention of any, of any kind of negative drawback, and I just think that that's, uh, th that's kind of lame. Uh, ultimately, if you got this book, or if you just like the idea of the item, one of the first things I would do is create a cursed version of the belt, which, as long as we're making changes, could be a crown, or something like that. Uh, <laughs> 
that the uh, that caused the character to heal the maddened thoughts of planet life as well as the useful information on what's going around. Perhaps the crowns wearer could even reach out to those voices for specific insights or to gain greater skill bonuses or to use speak with plants once a day or something. Um, naturally, over time, the whispers could drive the wearer mad and force him to decide if it's worth his sanity to abandon the excellent power of the crown. Yeah, just personally, I think that that would have been much cooler. Uh, that's the kind of thing I would have wanted to see. And if I if I had already bought this book, uh, that that would probably have been the first thing I would have done. All right. So on the next page, even though I liked the girdle of Greenland whispers, uh, we still haven't really seen a belt that I can really throw my full support behind. Um, there's always been some kind of problem, and that's been the problem throughout the the entire book. Uh, but when we get to page five, we, we, we finally find one that I can really get behind. We f have the Screaming Purse Holder. Uh, one of only a few items in the book where it being a belt actually makes good flavorful sense. Um, this magical anti-theft device shouts out an alarm to anyone around whenever someone other than yourself tries to remove an item contained within a pouch, sheath, or simply worn on your belt. That's cool. Uh, it's good. It's something you're actually going to maybe want if you're worried about being pickpocketed and I think it's particularly good for uh, for NPCs uh, who GMs want to or for GMs who are looking to create a sort of interesting encounter for PCs who enjoy pickpocketing I think that this belt could really uh, could really set up an exciting scenario so this one's okay uh, so on the last page the thieves strap is the last belt I'm going to talk about it's similar to the screaming purse holder uh, in that it's an anti-theft device, but this one's more worried about, uh, or really it's more of a pro-theft device, actually. It is worried about magical divination, anything contained in one of the belt's uh, pockets or that's like sheathed or tucked into the belt is protected from divination spells. This is, this is okay. Again, I, I think a box or a, a pouch or a chest w would have been better. Um... All right, so that's a belt from uh, every page that has them on them. And so what's my final verdict about belt one on? Well, uh, about two seconds thought every item in here seems to have been better suited to being something other than a belt. And the majority of the items aren't really all that interesting or creative. Uh, a lot of them are, are really rather boring and uh, and just just not something you're going to going to want. On the other hand, uh, you also don't get all that many of them. There's only five pages, and it comes out to uh, something like 15 to 18 belts. And for 2.99 on Drive-Through RPG, the the book just isn't all that good of a value either. So, I would say it's a loser. I, I would not get this product if you're thinking about it. So this doesn't leave me too hopeful for my next review, the Genius Guide to Loot for Less Fantastic Footwear. Again, they begin with an introduction, which runs down uh, that we're going to be getting bo boots for cheap. Uh, unlike the last volume, however, this genius guide does go on to explain about item, magic item slot affinities, my number one complaint from the belt book, uh, and something that I felt was a, uh, was a real serious problem that needed to be addressed. Hilariously, that book came out four volumes after this one, so, uh, so I guess that it's something that they've more or less forgotten about or given up on. At any rate, while I was initially pleased to see this section, my uh, optimism soon turned to mirth. Uh, let me explain. In this, in this section, they do effectively demonstrate a very basic understanding of item slot affinity, but the overall section is kind of a joke. My favorite part was where they said that all items that enhance ability scores are belts, which is of course not true for any of those who are familiar with the large selection of headbands or Ioun stones, which can improve mental statistics or any statistics. Uh, slotlessly, even, uh, that, that are in the core rules. Uh, just to sort of highlight the hilarity of the statement, they go on to say that this help, helps enforce character niches and gives an example that a wizard must choose to enhance his intelligence rather than his dexterity because he only gets one belt slot. Of course, th this is just untrue uh, because nat naturally a wizard can improve his dex and uh, intelligence with separate items, a headband and a belt. Um, and, and in fact, in, in the Pathfinder game, he, he doesn't even need to need to choose between individual stats because they have a belt of, uh, of perfection and a, and a headband along the same lines, which can improve all three stats. They've decided to call them out rather than just leaving rules for you can add an additional effect. 
So so it's it just really made me laugh when I saw that. Uh, and I mean, when you really think about it, that's just since Pathfinder. Their statements way less true when you consider the previous editions of D and D, where where everything was uh, was slotted to different items. Though there, there was more for flavorful reasons than balanced ones. For example, gloves that improve dexterity because of hand-eye coordination. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. So, um, naturally then, I wasn't all that comforted going on when they said that they assumed that Boots had an item slot affinity and that they knew what it was. Uh, luckily, with regards to Boots at least, their stated assumption seems reasonably on point. Uh, and it does give me an idea of what, what sort of thing to be looking at when I'm looking at their book. So they, they say that boots are about movement and speed, and when they're not about that, there will be a logical association to feet, and when that even fails, there, there will be a third thing about making sure that the item's appearance, at least, is related to the enchantment. So, so on page two, we have only one item to look at, the Abarca of Allure. So they just finished saying that the book, that boots have an affinity for enhancing speed and movement. And so naturally you might be wondering what the Abarca of Allure does. Well, it lets you make quick diplomacy checks without the minus 10 penalty. Yeah, based on what I read about their understanding of magic item slot affinities, that sounds about right. Uh, okay, so maybe maybe I'm being unfair. In, in fact, they do say that their enchantments, where, where they do fail... To, uh, to, to fall into their presumed affinity, uh, you remember I was just talking about, do relate directly to feet. Okay, that's not the case here, or, or visually appropriate, uh, and actually right after they say that, they list the Abarca as an example. Okay, I'm sorry, I just, I just don't get it. I, I went, I looked up, for those of you who don't know, Abarca is a sort of slipper thing, and uh, I, don't, I don't see how that's good for fast diplomacy, visually. It, do, it, do, it doesn't work, and it uh, has nothing to do with feet, and it clearly has nothing to do with movement speed. I don't know what they were thinking with this item, but uh, but may maybe if it like improved your diplomacy skill, cause, like like fancy and stuff. I mean that they aren't actually really, but but I could I could at least leave that. But they don't do that. Uh, though uh, inter interestingly, they do make it harder to run, which uh, which looking at the shoe, I, I can actually I, I can buy that. I'm soft sold so. Uh, in that regard, it's it makes sense, I guess. Uh, so let's move on to the next page, where we encounter a handful of boots with a uh, core of core rulebook race kind. It's like you know dwarven kind and elven kind and all that. So while while I like the boots of dwarven kind and gnomish kind, the boots of halfling kind seem to me to be unreasonably powerful, granting their owner the ability to take ten on on some skill rolls, including acrobatics. Uh, even when combat or other stressful situations would prevent that. I realize it's, that this isn't necessarily all that broken, but, but they do let interested characters tumble, basically, at will. So if you never want to provoke attacks of opportunity for moving again, I, I would pick these up for the 2500 GP. Uh, while they, they do go on uh, almost immediately thereafter to explain their pricing for the, uh, the of racial kind boots, I'm going to have to respectively uh, disagree both the, their valuing of a feat at 5,000 GP, something that they've had around from the beginning of the series, uh, and, then, and then more importantly saying that skill mastery, the, uh, the greater rogue talent, is, is the same as a feat, just because uh, the rogue talent ability also lets you take a bonus feat if you can't find anything better. Uh, I, they aren't really that equivalent, so... I think that this is a good example of their sort of wonky math that doesn't really work all that well. So uh, on that same page where they uh, where they give us the price breakdown on that, we uh, we get more of the of racial kind boots. And uh, since, since we've already talked about some of those, and those weren't particularly exciting for me, I've decided to talk about the other boots on the page, the bullhide boots. Uh, they let you move someone further than normal when bull rushing, which is an ability I can believe on boots that does have to do with movement. Uh, and pushing, so that's sort of, you do a little bit of that with your feet, I guess. Uh, in general, though, the, this isn't a review of what's okay to put on boots, so it's kind of turning into that. Frankly, uh, the, the ability is kind of boring from a just general sort of standpoint, and it's not all that appealing. I, I probably wouldn't spend money, and I definitely wouldn't want to waste my boot slot on this item as a player, even a player who was broke and was looking at discount boots. Uh, 
if I were designing the item, I, I would have had it give you a plus five bonus to CMB for bull rushing, which, which these do, but only after you win the check. Uh, while there isn't particular, while this isn't any more interesting than the current boots, it is, I think, more appealing. Uh, though, just as long as we're on things I would have done, I personally would have preferred to see boots, which instead reduced how far you could be bull rushed. Because the ability, I think, for me, connects better with boots standing as opposed to pushing. And um, and if you had them, say, limit the maximum distance you could be bull rushed to, say, 5 or 10 feet, that is more interesting than just saying something like you get a plus 5 bonus to your CMD. Uh, so, moving on to the next page, we do get a couple of sidebars. Uh, one of them explaining why they decided to do the bull hide boots the way they did instead of just having it give that straight bonus to CMB I was talking about. Ultimately, I wasn't all that impressed with what they had to say, and uh, nothing they had to say here swayed me to, uh, to thinking that they, they made the correct decision. Uh, the other one explains how a, an extra die six attack came out to be priced the way it did on their uh, hit kickers, and why the boots of haste were not necessarily a good place to start, even though that also lets you get an extra attack. The, this sidebar, I think, was uh, was a lot more well-formed. Their argument makes a lot of sense. You do get a lot more out of haste than an extra attack, and the values are different, so uh, at least here they, they had something nice to say. Um, uh, fortunately, in this paragraph, they talk an awful lot about the hit kickers, so I'm going to go ahead and talk about the other boots you get on the page, the Gravewalkers. Uh, these boots make it so that undead don't attack you. Not by having them making you more sneaky, but by enchanting you so undead decide not to attack. Well, not to be a broken record, but why are these boots? A sentence in the beginning of the book tells us that we can change any of the items we find in this book to be something else, so long as they take up an item slot. I guess that that is why these were put in here. It is to give you a chance to practice to practice that. So... Okay, so apart from uh, apart from that increasingly frequent complaint, uh, that this item isn't actually all that cool either, uh, most of the time. But it might have a place if you were looking at a scenario where you want to show PCs loads of zombies, but you don't want them to be attacked because they're too weak, or you're just really looking to show off a bunch of zombies. Uh, or if you want to explain why some NPC wasn't being slaughtered as the Skeletal Legion was sacking the capital, other than that, I can't really see any reason to want these, necessarily. Um, okay, so what, so what does page 6 offer as we're moving on? Uh, well, I'm glad you asked, because it's the first really cool thing in the book. Okay, it's the only really cool thing in the book. Uh, the one-third league boots. These neat boots let you jump really far and really fast. You can go a thousand feet, actually more than that, straight up in the air, or you can go a whole mile over land at like 120 feet around. You can't really do a lot while you're jumping, which is even cooler because it sort of gives you the uh, the sensation that you're just flying there. You can do a swift, free, or immediate action, uh, but, you know, who cares? I, you're not really going to want to do anything while you're flying there anyway. Uh, the, the best thing about these boots is it's like the Star Wars light speed for your fantasy hero. You just go, and that that's pretty exciting. Uh, the only minor problem I have with these boots is that you just get to sort of land safely at the other side as part of the boots magic. And personally, I want you to have to cast Featherfall or die horribly. It's just the cruel DM in me coming out, and uh, and that that's not something that should necessarily dissuade you from liking cool boots, uh, just because they don't match that in particular aesthetic. Uh, they also then have a sidebar here for explaining the item's price. Uh, it does make sense. It's worth noting that technically they should come out a little bit more expensive, probably, but uh, it, it's not really doing anything game-breaking this item and they're definitely cool enough to overlook their sort of sketchy mathematics they even sort of own up to in this in particular sidebar a little bit uh, they're definitely just cool enough that, that you can sort of overlook them for for any of that sort of thing all right not all items can be the one-third league boots though and on the final page of the book i would like to talk about the shadow footsteps this is an interesting item uh, which requires you to wander about someplace trying to follow a creature's footsteps uh, in order to get the magic to function. you got to go someplace the target is and then walk around there in their footsteps. That's the boot tie-in, and that's kind of neat. Uh, certainly is the only thing that about them that really makes them make sense as, as boots from any kind of perspective. 
what they what they do once you have them working is give you a plus six sense motive bonus when you're when you're dealing with that guy. Uh, so so once you get past the sort of walking around in an area thing, it, it's not all that interesting. Uh, it's not a very exciting item, and it's it, it's not something that that necessarily feels all that great on boots. But the uh, the cool trigger is is kind of interesting. I, I like that from a uh, from a sort of ethereal not looking at using this item perspective okay so what's my final ver verdict well if you haven't guessed by now i hated the book uh and the cheap laugh i got from their uh, their section on magic item affinity and the one cool thing about the uh, the book the third league the one third league boots they just aren't worth the 399 price tag Now, it's time for us to return to our ongoing story, the tale of John, the Grinning Skull Morgan, the skeletal pirate at the end of his luck. When we last left our story, John had agreed to join the crew of the Gentry, a smuggling ship run by Captain Bill Farthing, a man drowning both in debt and drink. John, along with a mysterious and taciturn warrior covered in strange tattoos and a hooded and enigmatic priest named Gregor, had been hired as protection on the Gentry for a brief voyage. Unbeknownst to any of its protectors, however, the smuggling ship was not bound for a normal mission of carrying cargo, but would instead be actively seeking out a mysterious force that was attacking shipping vessels in the region, and was suspected to be a dangerous gang of pirates in the best of scenarios, and quite possibly a powerful sea demon in the worst case scenario. With the matters of payment and other details settled upon, Bill had returned to his ship, telling the three men that they were to be on the gentry by dawn. The other two warriors shortly left, no doubt to get a few hours of sleep, and so be at their best in the morning. John, the Grinning Skull Morgan, had no need for sleep, however, and couldn't even if he wanted to, and he remained in the dark and empty common room of the pit, uh, pale green flames in his empty eye sockets providing the only illumination as he sat, still and motionless, for several hours, his mind buried deep in his memories. <clears throat> a few hours before sunrise, John finally stirred, rising purposefully and setting out from the pit, for the first time in weeks, possibly months. Before long, he found himself at the harbor, and after a short search, he found the vessel he was looking for. The gentry was not an impressive-looking ship. As a smuggling vessel, it was better off not attracting attention, and in fact, John knew the best smuggling vessels didn't look particularly fast or expensive, and tended to be a bit on the homely side. The gentry was no exception. Not more than 20 feet from stem to stern, it didn't look like it could hold a crew of more than a dozen or so. The ship itself was surprisingly quiet, considering that it would soon be setting off. A group of three or four men were hanging about on the deck near the stern, and John heard a loud guffaw break out from the group as he approached, as one of the men apparently said something amusing. Their laughter died off as they heard the rattle of John's saber against his bony legs as he stepped off of the dock and up the gangplank, boarding the ship. When they saw him, the sleepy, half-drunken grins fell from their faces completely, and they simply stared at him with disbelief, not quite reacting, each of them afraid that he was hallucinating and not wanting to cry out, Undead, first. John took the moment to survey the deck of the ship. It was, simply put, a mess. Crates and barrels were stacked haphazardly about so that if the gentry hit any storms, there was a good chance that some of them would go overboard. More to the point, they were a hazard in case anyone had to cross the deck in a hurry. The ropes in the rigging were in bad need of adjustment, and in some cases, replacement, and still worse dangers lurked in many corners of the ship's deck. Finally, one of the smugglers worked up the nerve to speak. Can, uh, that is, can we help you? John would have smiled if his face wasn't eternally locked into a rictus grin. Still, his grim amusement was plain in his voice as he responded, so, the captain didn't tell you then? Er, no. T tell us what. Here, John gave an exaggerated bow, taking his tricorn cap in one hand and flourishing it as he did so. John Morgan, at your service. I'll be in charge of keeping things secure on this little fishing trip. John Morgan, as one of the smugglers further from John, a larger man with a somewhat simple face and straw blonde hair. You mean John the Grinning Skull, Morgan, the pirate captain? John flashed the boy a grin, or rather he meant to, and wouldn't realize until long after that despite his efforts, his face had remained the same. He did wink, though, the sickly emerald flames in his left eye socket going out for just a moment. Aye, lad, one and the same. Is it true what they say? That you killed every man on an Imperial destroyer with nothing but a cutlass and a pistol? 
John laughed when he heard that, but only inwardly. In truth, John had effected a mass jailbreak from the ship's brig, and in the confusion had run her into some particularly nasty reefs. He never knew how those stories got out of hand. Something like that, I suppose. Or that you fitted a sea serpent with a bitten bridle and rode it all the way from Carrig to Parnassia after your ship was destroyed by a storm? This time John did laugh out loud, a series of short, sharp barks that caused the three, three of the men to flinch ever so slightly. That one was outright fabrication. John had never found any reason to go to Carrig, and while he had run afoul of one or two sea serpents in his day, he'd never felt a need to do anything as damnably foolish as try to ride one. It wasn't that he didn't think it could be done, he just didn't see the point in riding a sea serpent when he had a proper boat. Can't say as I recall that one, lad. And what about the tales of the Battle of Blackheart Lagoon? Piped up one of the other sailors, a thin, reedy lad with lank brown hair and a ferret-like nose. Are those true as well? A sultry voice came from a short ways behind John, preempting his own reply. Come now, surely you know better than to believe all the gossip you hear, and you have better manners than to pester Mr. Morgan. The voice's owner was a woman, who had come apparently soundlessly from below deck. She had long, raven-black hair that was currently tied up into a stern-looking bun on the back of her head. Her eyes were a light chestnut-brown, almost bordering on red, but not quite. Her lips were a rich shade of crimson, like an advertisement or perhaps a warning. Her skin was a milky white. She was dressed practically in a tunic and leather breeches, but something about the sway of her step or the way she held herself made it seem as though she were wearing fine evening wear. The men mumbled various things and wandered off under her friendly but slightly warning gaze. She turned to John, giving him a kind of level, no-nonsense no look that, until now, only one person had ever been able to give him since he had died. Percy's an idiot to try and goad you, but I'm only going to tell you this once. We don't kill members of our crew. I'm not saying that that's what you had in mind, of course, and here she flashed him a warm, if not entirely genuine, smile of pearly white teeth, but it is the way of things, and I absolutely hate trouble. I see was all John had to say to that. There was an unwritten rule in the pit that you didn't mention the Battle of Blackheart Lagoon. The first time that someone had, a grizzled old lizard folk captain, a real bastard of a pirate who had clung to life for over a century out of pure meanness and spite, and who, for all his lean and wiry appearance, could still arm-wrestle most orcs into submission. John had killed him. It hadn't been pretty, either. There had been no duel of honor, had been no etiquette. The bastard, Captain Hriska, his name had been, had wandered over to where John was sitting, the lizard man stinking of booze. He'd sneered at John and said that this place was only for pirates, that his kind wasn't welcome. This had been shortly after John had first arrived, and Hriska had been a patient, patron for longer than he had then. John had ignored him. Hriska had swatted John's drink away, sending it crashing to the floor and spilling its untouched contents in a spray of glass and beer. John had ignored him. Finally, the lizard man had made a remark about the battle. John didn't even remember what it was anymore. Something about the traitor of Blackheart Lagoon. Something to that effect. He did remember what came next, though. He'd grabbed his pistol and taken a shot right into the belly of the old lizard. As the bastard clutched his gut and stared down in surprise, John had, in one swift motion, stood, drawn his saber, and decapitated the fool. No one had mentioned the battle after that, and even though John had never really stopped thinking about it and about whether or not he'd made the right decision... There was something different about hearing it out loud. Even though he'd called himself worse things in the stillness of those many long, dark nights in the common room of the pit, it was different hearing them come from someone else. He was surprised by how fresh the wounds felt. He had thought that maybe he was starting to... But no, he had never forgotten. He hadn't started to move on. He'd simply been waiting in that dank hellhole, waiting for... What? He hadn't known. He still didn't. Maybe he never would. John just shook his head and wandered off, finding a crate to sit on while he waited. At the end of the day, that was, all that, was, that was all that was likely that this job would be. A lot of waiting for something to happen. Something that probably wouldn't. Not much reason for pirates to bother a small ship like this. Sure, it was a smuggler's ship, but they didn't know that. And the odds were that any ship that looked like this one was a fishing vessel. Not worth the effort. Demons were a possibility, but even then it wasn't likely. Demons were fairly territorial for the most part, and as long as you stuck to the shipping lanes... Routes that had sprung up in whatever stretches of sea weren't claimed by any demons, or at least not by demons that bothered to show themselves and attack ships, you would almost never encounter them. It's true that occasionally demons would wander from their territories, whether in search of prey or having been pushed out by larger demons, or possibly just because they were bored. The demons certainly weren't telling, but it was rare. 
John settled himself in for a long wait. That's unfortunately all of John's story we have time for this week, folks. Tune in next week when the action really gets started. In the meantime, it's time for us to move on to a little segment we like to call Seed to Story. For those of you who aren't longtime listeners, you may not be aware that what we're going to do here is roll a die percent and consult the 100 random adventure ideas table in the DMG, uh, the 3.0 DMG. Uh, then we're Josh and I here are going to take a little bit of time to try and expand that into a full fleshed out adventure idea, uh, both to give you an adventure idea you can use at your table and also to give you an idea of the sorts of practices that we at least use when we do that and hopefully help you uh, in similar cases the next time you need to come up with an adventure on short notice. So without further ado, it looks like we've got 65 and what's that going to come out to be? A strange green smoke billows out of a cave near a mysterious ruin. Well, now isn't that general? <laughs> yes. Well, obviously, if we want to actually stick to that in particular, that in particular plot hook, then then I think the the focus of the adventure is going to have to be on the smoke. And the first thing that comes to my mind when we're we're talking about magical smoke billowing out of somewhere. It sounds to me like it's probably going to be some sort of... It's going to have some sort of magical effect. Maybe it will... It, it could, I guess, cause, like, a plague. It might be more interesting if it caused some kind of mass hysteria or hallucinations or some other kind of mind-affecting effect. But it seems to me like what's going to happen here is this, this fog is going to affect the populace, and the local populace and the PCs need to find some way to either counteract its effects or, better yet... Um, go down to its source, well, maybe not better yet, but uh, the idea probably was that you go down to its source and stop the smoke. But whatever the case, the PCs are going to have to find a way to, to prevent the town or whatever from devolving into chaos. All right, let's run with that. So we got a mysterious smoke, which causes some kind of problem, hysteria or like mass idiocy, something like that. And it's creeping out of some cave. It's possible that it could be creeping out of many caves nearby, so there might be a uh, might be a more grand sort of conspiracy sort of thing going on, or it could be just this cave. It's probably going to end up being just this cave in terms of the PCs doing anything about it if they're going to actually go to the uh, go there. They're they're probably going to want to just to learn more, even if they're not going to be able to just sort of you know kill the dragon so to speak and deal with the problem. Well, why don't we go ahead and just to, to make it a little bit more interesting, why don't we uh, why don't we ditch the cave angle, which doesn't seem to be particularly central to it. Why don't maybe we set it in a city, um, you know, one of the just just big enough of a, a location to be a proper city and, and have some sewers, and maybe we can have uh, the smoke can just be billowing up from from somewhere in the sewers, and it's it just it slowly fills the entire town. Uh, perhaps at the beginning of the adventure, only certain quarters of the town are being affected, and then as it goes on, unless the PCs are able to effectively stop it, it eventually spreads and fills out the whole town, giving the PCs, especially if, if the focus becomes more of a how to prevent it or what are we going to, to do, uh, or you know damage control sort of thing, instead of a let's hunt out the source, that can sort of have, as it goes on, the PCs find themselves with less access to various parts of the city that they may be using or used to using, so perhaps early on they lose the library and now they can't research what it is or they lose the uh the hospital and sort of you know the temple i guess but you know they, they lose wherever the healing is and so they don't have access to that and and so on and so forth might make for an interesting and, and tense sort of drawn out thing yeah definitely shutting off access to resources gradually does increase the tension somewhat and it might increase the challenge uh, and if you're just having the PCs sort of let let's try to run some damage control, there's going to be a lot of, okay, well let's get everybody out who's you know sick or injured out of the temple before the fog goes there, and they're going to have to arrange priorities, and obviously they're going to need to coordinate with city guards or whatnot. Um, but ultimately, uh, the the problem with something like that is they're they're going to need to find some kind of satisfactory conclusion rather than just you know we eventually there's an exodus from the city so that there either has to be either we need to find a cure for for what the smoke is doing or the, or they need to uh to go down and deal with it and and personally i think that that if it's causing something like like hysteria hysteria or idiocy it might be fun to plunge the uh the pcs into sort of a 
sort of a situation where they're going to have to uh, have to be affected by that, and the players are going to have a chance to role play uh, something that their mighty heroes probably aren't very used to. That's definitely a good idea. Uh, and and before we go further into that, I do just want to uh, I just want to check in on. Um, you know, you were talking about getting a satisfactory conclusion, and that's definitely something that you want to plan for any adventure. Uh, in this case, there are a couple of different ways that you can go, and I, I think that ultimately um, there there's lots of valid points here. If if this is you know the result of some sort of evil conspiracy, then definitely the the end result of the the adventure should be that the PCs track down the source and put a stop to it, and then hopefully everything straightens out after a little while. Uh, it's also possible that you know maybe this is that this could just be a natural phenomenon. Maybe you know may, maybe it's um, or certainly if you wanted to make it a twist, maybe it's you know a, a weird moon or celestial event instead of a fog or whatever. But anyway, uh, wh whatever the case, it could just be something that is happening as a you know sort of a one-time thing, and the adventure really could just be about um, if the PCs were were going to be the kind of people who were going to feel responsible for the safety of the town in, at large. It could probably just be an adventure where they try to do damage control and weather everything out. Most likely, though, the more satisfactory conclusion is going to be that there's some cabal or something in the sewers that are that are putting out the smoke. Uh, as far as as far as the rest of that goes, yeah, it's definitely definitely true that that the adventure should probably feature at least one, and and if possible, it might be good to have more than one actual foray into the the sewers to go find the source of this. Perhaps the first time they find a um, they find a like a magic cauldron that's putting it out. They put a stop to that cauldron, only to discover that you know there's there's dozens of more cauldrons scattered throughout the sewer or or something like that where that hasn't stopped it. Alternatively, maybe they they find uh, they they fight the cultists, but the cultists you know they meld into stone or they they otherwise teleport away and then the pcs have to go track them down again and that way you can sort of mix between the pcs having to go or you know even if, if they stayed on the streets they they could have to go into the fog to get to some resource or to save some people and then you know the ideal thing here is you have them go into the fog several times so that they have chances to get affected by that you'd obviously want to think about what exactly you want the fog to do and what kind of effects that will have and then after they're infected then they can leave the fog and you can have a chance for that infection to sort of sit in and the slow growing of their madness or whatever and are they going to be able to last any longer are they going to become another one of the you know mindless horde outside and a you know that that sort of thing and then well yeah i mean i don't know it definitely seems to me that that the focus of the adventure that the thing that you're highlighting here uh is going to be that the, this fog and this madness and its effect on people so so yes i think i think you're right definitely exposing the pcs uh both to having it show up in them personally is is something that i would be very interested as a dm in doing in that adventure but uh but you could accomplish quite a lot by having them have to go into affected areas uh to to rescue people or uh or other things and then over time perhaps that they can gradually sort of restore access to some of those areas maybe they you know just need to get the temple free or they just need to get something out of that before they can start dealing with problems so I think a gradual solution where they're going to be affected multiple times and they're, they're going to sort of have to deal with things getting worse before they can start making things better is going to produce the, uh, the, the most fun adventure, I think. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think we're reasonably well on track with, with that kind of multiple exposure thing. As far as actually dealing with the problem, obviously it's going to depend a little bit on exactly the form that gets used. If it's you an auspicious celestial event they they may just have to wait it out um and that that could uh, that could work out or if it's cultists obviously they're gonna have to go and find them and if it's you know just some disease and there's a cure they have to go get that so it's gonna depend a little bit on how they should go about it but but yeah i think that the conclusion is going to have to be reached in multiple steps and personally i would like to see things gradually get worse before they could get there and again, I think that this in particular adventure idea is going to benefit the most from uh, both, as, as Josh suggested, which was very good, having, having the, uh, the fear of the PCs themselves being affected. It's 
very easy to uh, to try and you know just sort of sidestep that because they're the heroes, so they're going to solve it, and heroes don't get affected by this sort of crap. That's for peasants, but that's bad. You don't want to do that. Uh, and then two, I think the other thing that'll really drive home the um, the the power of this in particular mist or whatever force it is is to make sure that as the game progresses, you really start to see. Um, you know the the effect that it's having on the populace at large and so as you go through this adventure you'd really want to make sure that you included some scenes where you see like rioting and and some other things where where the pcs can sort of step in and uh almost paradoxically for heroes uh they can actually bring order in this in this chaos whereas normally normally obviously heroes are are outcast from society because they're a little too chaotic but anyway um We've uh, we've talked enough about that, and we're a little bit over time anyway, so we're going to go ahead and call it for today. The last thing I just want to touch on is our poll of the week. We spent a lot of time, a lot more time today reviewing products than we normally do, and we'd like to know how you feel about that. Do you want to see more or less reviews on the upcoming podcast? Would you like? Would you prefer that we stick to Pathfinder products, or would you rather we give you a look at gaming systems that you may not have heard of? Or would you rather we focus on other things, like optimal options, short stories, or even a lot more best beasts? Let us know on our forums, or drop us a line at arigs at necromancersonline.com, or jzabak at necromancersonline.com. That's it for this week. Tune in next time for a blue-blooded podcast as we celebrate Nobility Week here at Necromancers of the Northwest. And don't forget to stop by our website for free Nobility-themed articles all next week. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.